Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 16 in the book of Hebrews titled, Jesus' Priesthood Superior to Aaron's, Part 1, from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. Andy, in the previous podcast, we began to discuss the priestly ministry of Jesus, first by discussing Melchizedek and his superiority to Abraham and the Levitical priesthood. Can you give us a brief overview of verses 11 through 19 and the argument that's going to develop over these verses? Yeah, I think what he's saying is that the um, priesthood was the center of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. And the Levitical priesthood was at the center of that, the, the offering of, of the blood of bulls and goats, the animal sacrifice, mediated by or offered by the Levitical priests, uh, was the centerpiece of the Old Covenant. And he's going to say that Old Covenant is finished. It's obsolete. He calls it, it seems, almost some disparaging things here. It's a weak and useless and obsolete and aging and will soon pass away. So the time for all of that was done. And he's saying instead we have a new covenant. And the centerpiece of this new covenant is a priestly ministry in the order of Melchizedek, which he explained last time, which was a combination of a king and a priest whose priestly ministry is on the basis of his personhood and not on the basis of his ancestry or any of those things. So there's the superiority of the new covenant founded on a better priesthood. That's what we're looking at here. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord is descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. So, Andy, I want to start with verse 11, where he says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So he's basically saying that the Levitical priesthood was ineffective. It didn't work. Can you explain how it was ineffective and why it was ineffective? Well, let's zero in on the word perfection. He's saying that this Levitical priesthood could not make its worshipers perfect. Uh, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, then dot, dot, dot. And then he's going to say in verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. So both of these imply that a ministry that does not make us sinners perfect is useless. Because it cannot bring us to heaven. And if we are not perfect, we will not be admitted into heaven. We must have a perfect righteousness. 
Jesus said it very plainly in the Sermon on the Mount. You must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, it's so easy for us to say, and I hear this all the time in evangelism, well, no one's perfect. Well, that's right. It's just another way of saying we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we must be perfect. And this Levitical priesthood couldn't do it. The blood of bulls and goats and sheep could not make us perfect. But he's going to say very, very powerfully, and I was just looking for it a moment ago and I found it, in Hebrews 10, in verse 14, it says, By one sacrifice he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So Jesus has the power to make us perfect in the eyes of God. And we know that is by justification, sanctification, glorification, by justification, imputing or crediting perfect righteousness to us by faith, and then working progressive perfection in us. We never attain it in this life, but sanctification. And then instantaneously transforming us. He says later in this book, speaks of spirits of righteous men made perfect. And so this Christ's priesthood in the order of Melchizedek has the power to make sinful worshipers perfect and fit for heaven. But the Levitical priesthood never could. Hmm. So he talks about a change in the priesthood in verse 12. So what does he say necessarily has to happen after yeah. that? Well, I mean, he's, he's picking up on David's strange commentary out of nowhere, picking up on Melchizedek. Like I said, we wouldn't have given him another thought except that Psalm 110, David in a messianic psalm talks about it. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so it's like, well, why would there be the need for a new priesthood, a different kind of priesthood? And so the author's arguing, if you could have been made perfect through the Levitical priesthood, you don't need another priesthood. That one's working just fine. He's going to make the exact same argument about the new covenant uh, that Jeremiah predicted. And we'll get to that in chapter 8. Right. But he's going to say, look, if, if the old covenant had been fine, why was there need for a new one? So it's basically the same argument twice. Why would we need a new priesthood if the old one was working just fine? But it wasn't. It wasn't making any sinners perfect. It was just symbolic. It was a type and a shadow. That's what he's saying. So how do we know that the new priest came after the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood? And why is it significant that he came later? Well, uh, Melchizedek obviously does precede Moses. He preceded, you know, well, he was a contemporary of Abraham. So the Melchizedek priesthood predates the Aaronic priesthood. But in terms of the Jewish people, they, it just dropped off, dropped off the radar screen. It was just a, a part of the, of the Pentateuch, part of the Genesis account. They didn't give it another thought. And then David wrote the psalm and it's like, huh. I think probably just the Jews went, huh, and just kept on living at that point in the Mosaic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. So the uh, fulfillment of the Melchizedek-style priesthood did come later with Jesus. But that was long after this, this Aaronic priesthood was well established in the minds of the people. So he does mention in verse 12 that when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a necessarily a change in the law as well. So why is it necessary, if we're going to get a priest outside of this Levitical priesthood, and we're going to get a new priesthood, why is it necessary that there's a change in the law as well? Well, God orchestrated this whole thing. He, he made it very, very clear that there was a division of these offices of priest and king. Uh, they were different lineages uh, and very clearly established so that the Levitical priesthood was of one line, one tribe, and the promise of the scepter was given to Judah. The scepter would not depart from Judah. 
so this was part of, of Jacob's blessing of the 12 tribes. And so Judah, the, the king, would come from the, from the line of Judah. And so it's very clear the author here says that our Lord descended from Judah and David, that whole uh, Davidic covenant that was made that God would place one of his sons on his throne forever, that is a, uh, a descendant from, from Judah. And so Jesus in the book of Revelation is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But it was, it was not just discouraged or wasn't the practice. It would have been illegal for any descendant of Judah to offer gifts and sacrifices in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Illegal. It would have been against the law. And we know this from the case of Uzziah, who was a very godly king otherwise than this account, and who did the right thing but became very arrogant, as some of these kings tended to do. And he boldly went into the, the temple and I guess into the Holy of Holies or tried to go in there to offer, to burn incense, to make an offering. And some of the, the high priest and some of the other priests boldly stood against him and confronted him, though he had all the military power and the, and the civil power. But they said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to be in here. It's against the law. And they boldly, they were willing to take their lives in their hands to keep this, this arrogant king and the king was ready to throw the incenser at the high priest when suddenly leprosy broke out on his forehead and he, all of the priests saw it and he felt, I think, that it was happening, talking about Uzziah. And from that day on, he was separate from society in Israel. He lived in his own separate house, leprous and excluded from the assembly of Israel. That was a very clear judgment because it was illegal for a descendant of Judah to offer gifts and sacrifices. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to the house of David. He says, it says in verse 14, it's evident that our Lord is descended from the tribe of Judah. Right. But God set this up. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that we we're going to use a different language here. We we're going to call the law of Moses obsolete. Comes at the end of chapter 8, verse 13. What is obsolete and aging will soon pass away. Uh, and so there would come a time that the Mosaic law would be obsolete. It would be superseded by a new covenant and a new law. And the foundation of that new law was not just a descendant of Judah could be a priest. It's not like that. It's Jesus, descended from Judah, is our final high priest. And But in order for that to be not illegal, there had to be a change of law, a change of the covenant. That's the very point the author's making here. Right. So you mentioned that now it's, it's not, no longer going to be a, by descent, but it's, it's Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Sure. And then he introduces, reintroduces this psalm. Um, so you, can you talk about just uh, the authority that Jesus has to be our priest sure. because of his indestructible life? Yeah. I mean, it's again the language, you are priest forever. And so he has an indestructible life. So when did the high priest serve? Well, the rest of his life. And so it would go until the death of the high priest. Okay. Um, and so, okay, uh, when did the king serve? He was king until he died. So we have a king who never dies. We have a priest who never dies. This is a permanent thing. So we're not looking for a pattern now that's set up. And so his son will then take his place. He's never going to die. He lives forever. And so it's based on what the author calls here so beautifully, the power of an indestructible life. Isn't that great? Mm. Death has no power over Jesus. He died once. He can never die again. 
Death has no power over him, it says in the book of Romans. So he has this indestructible life. And he takes all of that energy, that, that life, and he uses it to save us. He never dies. He always lives to intercede for us and pray for us and minister on our behalf. We have the perfect high priest. That's what the author is saying here. Amen. So this is why in, in verse 18 and 19, he talks about just the perfection of his ministry. He says, on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. You mentioned that in the beginning, how it was ineffective to make perfect. Mm. He says, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Yeah, this is a superiority of the new covenant. The new covenant superiority of the old one. The priesthood on which it's based, the priesthood of Jesus, is superior to the descending priesthood of the sons of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron. Just a better, it's a better setup in every regard. And so again, the, the big picture here is that these Jews, these Jewish professors of faith in Christ, were being tempted to turn back to old covenant Judaism. Why would you go back to something that you just read is weak and useless? It's, it's obsolete. It's been superseded. And so we have a better priesthood. We have a better um, covenant by which we draw near to God. And that's what he's saying. And he's saying, look, this whole thing is proven by a providential fact. Someone has come along like this. There is actually someone who popped up in history, who is a descendant of Judah, who is a king, and who carries on a priestly ministry. You know, if we had no one like that, we'd be scratching our heads and wondering who could do this. Who will fulfill this role? Who could it ever be? We don't have to wonder. He came first, and now we get the later book of Hebrews to explain it all to us. And uh, what we have said is even more clear now if someone like this comes along, and someone like this has come along. So we, all we have to do is kind of read back and reverse engineer the thing in history. We have someone who's come along, who is a king, who is a priest forever, and it's Jesus. Amen. And he says you know, a better hope mm. through which we draw near to God. I want to tie this into the paradigm you've been consistently laying down, a superior mediator bringing a superior covenant leading to a superior life. That's that language of better hope, you know, better superior. Hope. What does the new covenant bring as far as it says we draw near to God, the drawing near to God. How is the new covenant bringing a better hope yeah. as opposed to the old covenant? Yeah, so first and foremost, it does effectively bring us to God. And so we are in a right relationship with God. We've been reconciled. Our sins are forgiven. He's adopted us. He is not wrathful toward us, but has adopted us and will love us forever. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is our God, our Father, our King. He is the one who loves our soul. We are safe now in Him. And so by this, we draw near to God. We're not told to keep away like in the Old Covenant where barriers and dividing walls are set up around Mount Sinai or around the tabernacle or around the temple to keep us out. Instead, we are called on and commanded to draw near. And he calls it, and this is the key to everything, and the whole book of Hebrews is all about hope. The book was written for our hope or our faith in different ways, a life of faith or a life of hope. It's really the same thing when it's forward-looking. Hope has to do with things that have been promised to you, but you don't have yet. Things that, that you don't have yet, who hopes for what he already has? And they are good things that are yet to come. So we Christians should be filled with hope about the future. Fill the hope about heaven, really, about the next world. And so the author is going to say, don't worry about your possessions. Don't worry about your freedom, even. You might be incarcerated. Don't even worry about your earthly life. You might be killed. But you have a better hope by which we draw near to God. And so you can die in hope. 
knowing that you hadn't received, just like the patriarchs, you hadn't received the things promised yet. They're all in the future. They're about the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. They're about the resurrection body. That's the better hope. And, and so this new covenant gives us a, a better hope. The old covenant didn't give us this kind of thing, full forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, promise of a resurrection body, all these things. These are new covenant blessings. And this better hope, that's the essence of Christianity. And by the way, we as Christians, we need to have that hope. We need to be filled with hope. We need to be bold and confident in hope because we're surrounded by people who are without hope and without God in the world, Ephesians tells us. They're hopeless. They have no answer to death. They really have no answer to life either. They don't know what they're living for. They're eating, drinking, and being merry, but they're really not merry. They know that things don't really satisfy. They're living for football games, and they're living for food, and they're living for entertainment, and they're living for sex and pleasure and materialism, and it just doesn't satisfy. And their souls are rotting out from within. But we Christians, we ought to be exemplifying a supernatural, otherworldly hope that's totally immersed in the world to come. And so we're living for that, and we don't care about what we get in this life. We don't care about our material possessions. We don't care about what happens to us. We're just so filled with hope. And then, like Peter said, people will come and ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have, because you have something I don't have. So this is that better hope by which we draw near to God. And back in chapter 6, he said it's an anchor for the soul that never gives way. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. That is awesome. Do you have any final comments on this section? I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just made well, it. <laughs> Well, I hope our listeners are not weary of discussing the Melchizedek and the Aaronic Priesthood because we have one more one episode more because the author of Hebrews keeps going. And so next week we will talk about Jesus' priesthood superior to Aaron's part two where we discuss Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 28. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.